Welcome to Mindful Mutiny. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, CEO, therapist, and high-level coach. On Mindful Mutiny, we thoughtfully rebel against anything that keeps people from obtaining their highest potential. Today, you're going to want to listen because we have an awesome guest. This is Dr. Zeus Yamayanis. Dr. Zeus Yamayanis, PhD, is the founder and chief of the CitizenZeus.com. Dr. Yamayanis is also the author of The Spiritually Confident Man and Transforming Economy, From Corrupted Capitalism to Connected Communities. Dr. Zeus is a learning consultant and professional developer who transforms the ability of individuals and companies to learn how they learn. Dr. Zeus has a PhD in the philosophy of education. Dr. Zeus, thank you so much for being on the Mindful Mutiny podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So there's so much to talk about here because you and I became acquainted, I believe, back in about 2018 when you had written The Spiritually Confident Man. And I suppose let's kind of start there with the the basic tenets of The Spiritually Confident Man, what mm -hmm. that is, and why you felt it was an important thing for you to kind of bring to the national consciousness. Yeah, I was. Um, there were two things that drove me. Uh, I think that were different than uh, many of the other men's studies type of men's group type of movements. And I've been to many of them. I've been to Mankind Project and others. But I was I was taken with the absence of two very important things. One was the absence of an updated understanding of man's journey. Everyone always seemed to go back to. Joseph Campbell and the archetypes and the lover and the philosopher and the king. I'm not objecting to that or the appropriation of Native American rituals to the extent that they may honor those rituals. But we needed what I thought was an updated understanding, a postmodern understanding of where we are right now and a rendering of the traditional man as well as the modern man uh, in, that pointed toward a, a more toward spiritual confidence, toward co-creativity. And that was the second point. Almost all men's groups and men's studies were done to the exclusion of women. That that the spiritual notion of polarity, where there's the feminine receptive principle and the masculine assertive principle, and the necessity for any balanced person to have healthy forms of those two within them, was almost absent entirely from men's movements. There'd be the sweat lodging, there'd be the drumming, uh, there'd be the growing the beard, there'd be the... <laughs> back to the wild man <laughs> but there wasn't uh, you know and you know and and then the, what i call the social man in my book there's three types the animal man which i respect i have a regressed transitional and evolved form the evolved form of the animal man is the responsible man that's when we think of the the morally high traditional man and then of course there's also a, a you know regressed transitional and evolved form of the modern man of the social man i call him and that is usually uh considered like a, a guy who helps equal participant in, in, in house cleaning and raising kids and can responsibly have a job and so forth and so on. So, you know, both of those are honorable and I say we have to retain them. So I'm not ideological, I'm inclusive in the way that I do this, but I really wanted a co-creative man. And that was what I didn't see. And this highest form of the co-creative man is what I call the spiritually confident man. He goes from despairing because, you know, he's in mid-age, he's, he's raised the kids, he's done, he's accomplished something in work. And then he goes to a kind of searching and then finally realizing that the route he needs to find, the grail, if it will, is here. 
within the own spirit and in that sense of self-trust and the notion that he has unique divine genius as we do all that we can offer the world. And it is God given. It's not something, it's something we can choose to develop. You know, it's something we can devote ourselves to. Um, and we must, I believe, uh, but it is given the basis is given for us. And for me right now, I'm choosing to go on that path. And I think I've had a little help from the universe and you seem to with your with your podcast, and that is finding that either the institutional environments are too limiting, or that there just is a desire to bring forth a story or a sense of meaning or practice that's just not available. And for me, I want to be the kind of man that I talk about in that book. And I had I have expertise in education, applied to many jobs, but the universe seems to be holding off on those. And so I've just recently decided to dedicate myself to what I call spiritually confident living and being a spiritual counselor on that. I've just started a substack on spiritually confident called spiritually confident, and I'll have some episodes up in addition to Citizen Zeus on uh, on a new YouTube channel. It's going to be a it's going to be a particular passion of mine. And in that, I am hoping and desiring to bring these age-old philosophical and spiritual principles into the enactment of this life, not just around masculinity, but about things like humility. And I just did an article on humility saying it's an indispensable spiritual tool. It's Humility is not prostration, I say in this particular article. It's actually being able to hear beneath, which is the Greek root of the word, to hear that which is the higher and, and commit yourself to it. And that can be difficult because it doesn't have, uh, you know, an easily laid out road or very professional uh, acclaim. A lot of times you're going to have to do what you're doing, Jeremy, which is to go on faith and realize that the other options are played out and and to take that leap of faith. And you and I are doing it about the same time. So this is an opportunity. I, I think we are. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about you you mentioned the industrial model and we you know were raised in the industrial educational model and then prepared to go into the working world into an industrial working model and there are very specific characteristics that are uh, that that are that are praiseworthy that are the most useful characteristics that make a person the most useful in an industrial system mm -hmm. it and when you're talking about the wholeness of self that you're you're talking about with a with a man being a holistic total kaleidoscope of many different things including creativity and everything like that it feels like the industrial model has almost intentionally bred that kind of thinking out of people and it's a real shame and it's been a part of what I've been writing about and starting to teach about is how do you start to gain a larger sense of wholeness for yourself when we have a system that really simply um, uh, kind of grinds people down to a specific kind of effort versus reward model. Mm -hmm. It's a divide and conquer strategy. Um, it, I don't think that's intentional, but the industrial model is what I call a grid model, right? Hierarchies of authority, like you see on the corporate ladder, and then going across grids this way are specializations, 
mostly professional specializations and work specializations. The idea, the conceit behind it, and it's a false conceit, is that there's a sort of scientific engineering project, not God created, but human created, right? That can kind of put all these pieces together if we just do our little bit. We can we could have a family, we can get our sense of self-worth. We just pick one of those boxes, right? And maybe we move up along the hierarchy as we, you know, get promoted at work, or maybe we move a bit laterally because, you know, we wanted to try something a little, you know, you know, maybe related to our field, but a different subspecialty or something like that. That is collapsing, not only because of AI, not only because of um, because of mechanization, not only because of, I think, the limits of consumerism and environmental sustainability, but but most importantly, it's collapsing because of what you've said. Holism is health and fragmentation is disease. There's just no other way to put it. You can be in a disease state historically for a few hundred years. Industrial evolution is probably getting up on about 200 or so, late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, so 175 or so. Um, but at a certain time, that sickness is gonna create symptoms. And what is created here is huge separation of wealth, anxiety about without the holism what can you trust about yourself what what your job is what happens if you get outsourced or fired now what do you have right so my book spiritually convent man was attempting to get at it at a stable eternal permanent understanding of where self-worth comes from and masculinity comes from in a man and it is not in his job it's an interesting statistic that men die very soon after they retire overwhelmingly, oftentimes within months or within a couple of years. And you can see why in the industrial system, right? Your entire self-worth, social worth, family worth, etc., is tied into your job. Once that's gone, you, you basically sent the message over many decades to your body. Once I stop working, my I, I no longer have a reason to exist and your body complies. Now let's look at the holistic alternative to that. What if your if your worth was based on self-respect and this divine genius? You're not quite sure what it is or how it can articulate itself or how you can get paid for it, et cetera, but that it wants to continue as long as it can. It wants to develop itself through the challenges and risks you take. And it it, it it's so positive and affirmative and to get to your point mindful mutiny that you will rebel in a positive way against things that you do not find helpful to to what you what you consider uh, as having integrity for yourself uh for me um i'll give a humorous example i guess because it's so obvious <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have shared this with you. Um, I was trying to go uh, to, to, to pursue a spiritual path. And I didn't have enough confidence, as I do now, in trying to form that path for myself, realizing that an institution was not going to fulfill it. So I went to a seminary. There's a local one here called Trinity Seminary. Then I transferred to one called Methodist Theological Seminary of Ohio. And at that seminary, I was 
drawn by my heart to help an African-American woman who I think of as a living saint. Her name, her name was Shaka. Uh, uh, Ishaka is her name. We just called her Shaka. And she, she keeps homeless people at her home. She's raising children. She's just got a heart of gold. And she's just got this glow around her. You could see that. And I think this threatened one of our professors there because she was getting criticisms of plagiarism. She was getting criticisms, getting C's and stuff. And I said, Shaka, she's just threatened by you. So I said, I'm going to go ahead and show you how to respond to the conceits of a threatened professor. She was giving us this video. She had her name and the copyright date in the date of a film, like copyright her name and date. So I said, what you do is you go into her videos, see what she wants. You type it into a search engine. You can bring up the sections of our readings, you know, because the internet's so broad, it will get the sections of our readings. And then you can kind of give her back what she wants. You know, I type that in and then I find that not just a few words matched, but every single word matched. She had narrated her videos that she had copyrighted under her name and with the present year, completely word for word from a Unitarian website on Christian ethics. Mind you, this class is on Christian ethics. It just couldn't be any more ironic. <laughs> oh my gosh. And all the class material I found out was cribbed from this thing. This is the person that was the most, the biggest bear on plagiarism in the entire campus. And she had literally plagiarized almost every element of her class and only in a couple places had put references there and had copyrighted in her video with her face, her name and year, something in which she read word for word practically from this Unitarian website. So in an industrial framework, that's okay. You have the power and authority to do that over the students, you know, exert that power and authority. If you borrow, that's okay. If it's for your specialty, go ahead. There is no real moral compulsion there. There's no holism. There's no virtue in an industrial model whatsoever. And so I tried to use a Christian example. So listen, I am not trying to get this person fired. I want restorative approach, restorative justice, right? Not punitive in the Christian model. I want her to admit to her students what happened and say that she essentially repents and that, uh, that uh, she's going to learn from this, right? <laughs> and uh, and that's the way, that is the spiritually confident way to do something, okay? Fess up, face it, see anything that's difficult and that might damage your social status as a, as a, as a, as a humbling but important move forward in your spiritual development, you know? And I've had many examples like that, but that's not what happened. The, the 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 dean of academic dean started covering for her. The president covered for her. The board covered for her, and that's the industrial model. The system must be maintained, no matter how corrupt the people in it are. If they're a good soldier in that system, then they need to be protected. And if you are a person with virtue who challenges that system or anyone in it with authority, you need to be disregarded, punished, disposed of, and so forth. So it's impossible in an industrial system to do anything other than come up with corruption. The specialization and authority mean more than virtue. They mean more than holism or health or sustainability. 
you see that military industrial complex or the prison industrial complex or big pharma complex in our society right now. And that's all you see, leveraging power to have specific concentrated power over people and concentration of wealth with no apology whatsoever because there's no ethic except the system's perpetuation and reproduction. Industrial era education as well as industrial era economies were always about reproducing, reproducing more and more efficiently. There was never a philosophical or spiritual reflective turn there, right? And that's really dumbed us down and made us essentially corrupt. And now you're seeing some of the most insane forms of that coming due. (laughs) And I'm sure since you've read some of my articles, you know that I have been not shy about pointing to the insanity of these things. So as as you're talking here, um, this is that's an amazing story, by the way, because it took a left turn that I wasn't really expecting. Mm-hmm. I, I I was kind of expecting for you to have brought this up, and this professor uh, admitted that she could be doing better, and that there was some you know restorative justice in it. But what you what you talked about here is something that I have seen over and over and over again in my own career, where mm-hmm. I have seen people adapting to this model and becoming soldiers people who at one point were vibrant promising young professionals getting into a system that is bigger than they perceive as bigger than themselves something with a big name and in order to climb inside that system they become that system and in private conversations over a drink, they might admit that it's all nonsense, but mm-hmm. they 100% become agents of that large system, whether it is a police department or a hospital or a government program or even nonprofits or whatever. In order to climb up in it, they become the the system itself. And the system, when I say corrupt there's various forms of corruption there's moral corruption there's financial corruption there's power corruption there's all these sorts of things but as an example this particular professor that you're talking about is somebody who at a certain point decided to compromise values in order to have the prestige of a title of professor which is something that is vaunted right mm-hmm. and I, I i i see many people chasing that prestige of the title and the money mm-hmm. and they get there and they're they they either totally embrace it and become something different than they ever were and kind of lose themselves mm-hmm. or it eats them up inside and they're counting the days until they can get out of that system because it's so unfulfilling mm-hmm. and it's so gray for them in their lives. And it's a, it's a way that they never thought that their lives would turn out, but there they are as agents of a large system. And unfortunately I'm seeing that that is the way for people to, that people feel that they have to be in order to climb and be successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's coming to a head because, because of the downsizing, there are some people who have retained their job through seniority, et cetera. But if you're a mid-career professional like myself, I applied to many, many jobs that I was qualified and even overqualified for. But especially after COVID, it seems like people want to hire someone they already know, right? And that they can rely upon, they can reliably fit into the system, as it were, right? 
So uh, I, I think the fear created and anxiety created by COVID created this, this weakened fitness in China's around engaging new challenges. As entrepreneurialism has been romanticized in the United States, I've never seen a le- less entrepreneurial time than now, where people, at least on, on a professional level, were not completely unwilling to take a chance on someone who's qualified with new ideas, et cetera. So we're getting the ghettoization of people who are qualified, but they haven't already been plugged into the system or vetted by the system. And those people are wandering in the desert a bit, myself included. And that's fine. I mean, I'm 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 prepared for that. I understand that that comes with the territory. Others are still wondering. And then there are the people in the system, like you say, everyone I talk to says, I'm not satisfied. I'm not fulfilled. Um, we're not really doing the work we used to do before COVID. Like now everything's being mechanized and, you know, the human touch is being absolutely eliminated. Um, you know, people are being outsourced. People are being dumped and then their job responsibilities are heaped on to the person that's left. I mean, the, the social contract is completely gone. The concentration of wealth, pensions, all that stuff, uh, benefits, all those things are beginning to kind of be optional, right? And we don't really have a, a government backing on that. So so now we're we're put in this precarious position where we can't really go back Right. COVID exposed a lot of things, exposed our consumerism, exposed our shallowness. It exposed um, our precariousness. Um, But it also opened the way for us to understand what we want. It got us outside. Right. It got us into a contemplative and reflective space by necessity. Um, Some people kind of have moved on from that or drifted back into the unconsciousness of that industrial, those industrial frameworks. And a lot of others, even those still working in it are, are doing, as you say, they're, they're saying, I don't want to do this. I got another nine years here. You know, if I'm going to get full retirement and you almost, I, I don't know if you've had that conversation I have with them is saying, what would you do this nine years if you didn't? Right. You know, what, what would you rather really be willing to do? And what would you need in order to walk away from that? And a lot of them haven't thought a lot about it. You know, I I probe a little bit more deeply and I get some answers. And I've coached people on how do you at least start working on your passion, even if you're working within the system, right? Like, how do you cultivate an understanding of that? Develop some connections about that. Develop a Substack or YouTube channel or some kind of outlet whereby you begin to make that transition. You know, and if you're the kind that doesn't want to let the Tarzan doesn't want to let go, get grab one vine without letting go of the next one. At least how can you reach out to that next vine in a way that's much more aligned with the person that you are at a, at a base level? You know, I if if all the people that I've talked to on this, it's definitely more spiritual. People are tired of the corruption. They're tired of the lack. There's a great sociologist. I'm forgetting his name now. Uh, Ted something, I think uh, he calls them bullshit jobs, where people admit that their job is not producing not only any satisfaction for them, but any value for society. It's this managerial administrative culture that has taken over the United States under a technocracy and and the world in which people are like just shoveling out papers and they're getting their benefits and whatever. They're like, this is just junk. There's nothing here of value whatsoever. 
And that's becoming more and more prominent. So the question then becomes, well, what is of value? And that's a great philosophical question. And it's a great spiritual question. I've been listening to Epictetus, a Stoic, as well as Marcus Aurelius on tape. Totally recommend it to everyone. Oh, my gosh. These are definitely messages right from the time Ryan Holiday and his like five minute version of of these is not going to do it for you. Uh, Definitely hear these on tape as you're walking through the woods. And if you want your frequency to be lifted almost immediately. And uh, they talk about God as well as God's. Right. And uh, and I'm also the other part that really lifts me is Christian mysticism. I, I listen to Christian mysticism and I read Christian mysticism because it really has to do with grounding yourself in a relationship, direct relationship with God or spirit. And with that, you can have spiritual confidence. Confidence means to trust with. So when I say spiritual confidence, I mean to trust with spirit. Right. And to trust with spirit means you have to spend some time in contemplation, meditation. And you don't just do it in order to get rid of your anxieties and to blank your mind. Okay. You do to get in touch with the fiber, the integrity and the fiber of the person you are. Commit that question, for instance. What would I really like to be doing? Don't answer it too soon. Take the time to sit in meditation and see if any memory pops up from your childhood or any impulse, or anything comes in sideways, those will be little clues that are being offered up by your subconscious, your unconscious, to to give you a clue of what you cannot cannot not be, right? (laughs) Those are the things you cannot avoid. That, That has to do with your divine genius right here. And again, don't panic. Yes, it's total. Yes, it's all you. Yes, your emotions are saying, but if I invest all of myself on this one thing, and this is the deepest and most complete and holistic sense of myself, what if it goes wrong? Won't I be devastated? I won't have any other option. To which I would simply say, well, you could not do that and then die. <laughs> you could not take the time and then and don't make it so black and white. Okay, if you want to continue to keep your job, keep your job but begin to spend the time and dedication here and realize it's what's leading your life, not what's following or what's being shoved to the side. So don't panic, right? Take the time to explore. Take the time to have those moments of silence and meditation. Take the time to let some of those childhood memories and joys come forward and then use those to help inform learning how to learn right? Or in what you're saying, inspiring growth, igniting transformation. That to me is really the, the, the match to that. Until you take the time to one, recognize that you have a divine genius and that the spirit has to be the most central thing in your decision-making and your development, your soul development. And the second thing is to devote yourself to listening to it. Now, Third and fourth and fifth steps are, okay, now you're listening to it and it's bringing up these joys and passions that you think, I don't know anything about these things. How am I ever going to fit them in with family and everything else? Don't let that chatter happen. Just continue to stay with it. Continue to say, is there something simple I can do to help me experience this joy? It means going to a meetup group in that content area. It means calling up a friend you know is interested in the same thing and begin to say, I'm really passionate about this. I don't get to talk about it in my everyday life, but I'd like to kind of move more deeply into this. 
that's all that's required. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. The journey begins with a single step. These cliches apply here. You know, um, just about 10 minutes before you said it, I was thinking, I really need to stop plugging the book Bullshit Jobs because I say it in every single podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's so, it's so, it was so formative and changing for me. And I remember reading that book and realizing, I think I just learned more about the job that I have right now than any training that I've ever received in the job that I have right now. And it was, Mm -hmm. it was a real eye opener, particularly in the confines. And this was published well before the Mm -hmm. pandemic, but the pandemic has changed consciousness in, in our world, in the professional world, especially because before there was just simply this kind of concept of the social contract that you build your career, you um, you might job hop a little bit, but a lot of people had this idea. If you stay with the company, the company will eventually take care of you. But this, there seems to be a awakening, uh, an awakening with regard to that corruption that you were talking about, this concept that you as a person are just simply really a tool mm-hmm. for a big entity mm-hmm. that uh, will soulless. use. Soulless entity, by the way, okay. one dedicated towards some kind of usually material or power advancement and concentration. But no, I mean, it, it, it in its advertisement, it says we're going to make the, a better world, but then you look and it's not making a better world. It's making a worse one. Yeah, I'm just sitting here and I'm thinking of all of the companies that I could list off right now that that's exactly what it is, you know. And through the pandemic, I think there was this awakening where people started maybe having some time to think a little bit more about their lives and about what they really want. And people started new creative pursuits and realized that they enjoyed those things and they hadn't been engaging in them. And I've had that very conversation that you were talking about with people where they're saying, well, gosh, I've got nine years left doing Mm -hmm. this thing that I hate and then I'll get a pension. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking 10 years is a long time. And do you think that pension is actually going to be there? I mean, if everything goes count on up, you know, I'm going to say anytime, because we, we had this, uh, um, we call it the dead Greek society. It was kind of a play on the dead poet society. And the first had to do with instrumental versus intrinsic. If you are instrumental in the way that you engage your life, you will get burned. Even when you succeed, you're going to fail. Okay, even if you get that pension, you've lost those nine years, right, et cetera. And I, I wouldn't bet on it. Not the way economies are going now. All these promises can be thrown out the window tomorrow. So living an intrinsic life, that's where you, and that's the life of virtue. That's where you do it for the value of the thing in itself, not for what it can get you. Okay, so that's the intrinsic way of living. And what we have in industrial society is everything is instrumental. Like you say, humans themselves are disposable tools, right? Here's a question I would ask you, Jeremy, because you've done so much research on these bullshit jobs. It's an interesting philosophical question. I'd like to get your view on it. Since people recognize these jobs are bullshit, right? 
And even the companies themselves kind of recognize their bullshit. Why do they persist? What function do they serve if they don't serve a substantive life-enhancing function? Okay. So I think the answer to that is simply people going, well, what the hell else am I supposed to be doing? Uh, people going, well, I've got this job. I'm making six figures. I can cover my rent. What mm-hmm. am I supposed to do? And that perpetuates the engagement in, and I, I have, I've worked with a number of people who will admit that they don't work very hard. They make a tremendous salary. They work maybe 15 to 20 hours a week for a big name company and they're 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 kind of dying inside because they see that they don't really have any value but they go, "Well, am I just supposed to quit? I mean, I I work 15 hours a week. It's pretty cool. I ride my bike a lot and I just think, "Well, if you are working 15 hours a week, do you think your company doesn't know that? Do you think that they're going to when time to cut?" comes around, not look at the people they know are not really putting in full value for them. You're not as secure as you think you are. And I think that people still are running under this concept that that they are. They are secure in in these jobs, but we're seeing more and more people just get Friday afternoon notices that they no longer have a job. And that company is so nice. They're going to pay you for an extra three months to go find a new job. And then it takes you eight months to locate something that that is reasonable for you to do. Yeah. 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 So I, I think your question is about why is it perpetuating? I think that there's been enough training in this industrial model that it's very, very difficult for somebody to make a switch and go, well, what if I based my livelihood on a completely different idea? What if I downsized everything? I did something that I liked. Maybe I became self-employed. Maybe I got a job with a organization that I really do trust. Mm-hmm. And I don't live in this area. I live in this area uh, instead or, or, or what have you. I think that there is a sense that that would be admitting some kind of defeat because we have a sense of what success is and is not, which I am hoping is starting to have cracks in it right now, mm-hmm. because I, I think people are generally dealing with feeling a strong sense of not being fulfilled. Yeah, and I think there's a notion of sunk costs, and you know this from your counseling oh, yeah. background, which is I put this much into it. You know, if I leave now, I won't get X amount of retirement, or I don't know what else to do, you know, or the whole idea is that there's an investment of identity, investment of worth, investment of value. There's a momentum. Sometimes there's even seniority and other things that come with it. But I would challenge that basis and have challenged it in my own counseling practice. I'm saying the evidence is the fruit, right? The fruit of this work is what? It's a bullshit job that you and even maybe the company you do don't believe it actually does much. And you're personally unfulfilled. So literally it has zero or even negative value. Do you have enough respect for yourself and enough integrity to at least one, admit that and to realize that that is a negative situation? What you're calling stability and security 
is the same securities that death offers, right? Motionless. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay. In this case, it's soul death or it's moral death or it's death uh, of your vital life spirit and your talent, which is being wasted, right? And that has been true of men. Men have had to confront this earlier. And I, in Transforming Economy, by the way, I have all kinds of alternatives to how to do that radical downsizing you're talking about, that radical nonviolent civil disobedience and unplugging from the system. But in the Spiritually Confident Man, I talk about how we as men can begin to unplug from this kind of patriarchal domineering situation in a non-judgmental, non-shame-based way. This ridiculous Me Too is kind of metastasized into something you can't even recognize anymore. But the whole point is, and I say this in my book, I said, as you age, spiritually, this is your time. Because men have based their worth professionally in the industrial system, but they base their worth personally, right, in physical vitality, sexual conquest, marrying someone a third your age, whatever it happened to be. And I'm like saying, no, as you age and some of this physicalness is dropping away, at least the vigor and some of the sort of attention and centrality that begins to drop away, now your spirit can advance forward. Now you can begin to say, hey, what's just here? What's virtuous here? I want to be a good man in that sense of virtue, not a good man in terms of social acclaim and in terms of reputation, salary, et cetera. So what does that look like? And the fact is we don't usually have those kinds of discussions. We don't have them in our classrooms. Now you will have it if you take a class with me. <laughs> I focus on the virtues. You know, my my in the book, I talk my seven C's. The ones I do in my class are slightly different. There's a lot of overlap. The most important ones are courage, which is usually a conservative principle, compassion, which is usually considered liberal, and creativity, which is usually considered progressive. Okay. And then there's curiosity, conscience, capability, and critical mindedness, right? Those are the kinds of things that allow us to be savvy in the world, but based here, right? As well as caring for others. And all of those things have been neglected because they don't need to be attended to in an industrial system. An industrial grid system all those needs are supposed to be taken care of by the engineering of the system, not with human care. And now we're beginning to realize that if we submit to that system, as your clients have and people you've talked with have, you dehumanize yourself because it is a dehumanizing system. You are subjecting and agreeing to your own dehumanization and despiritualization. And the fact that you feel low and unfulfilled is a good thing. Just like when your health is down, you're feeling sickness or pain is a good thing. It's a sign that you're going the wrong direction, right? And that you ought to try other directions. You need to get healthier. You need to get simpler. You need to start withdrawing from those things that drain you, that make your that 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 you find worthless, that that stress your integrity. And those aren't that difficult to identify. Here's the problem, though. Most people who identify those things about their work, their friendships, maybe even their marriages, because relationships have, have really been strained by COVID too, they 
if they were honest, they'd say, listen, I'd rather be ignorant because if I actually become aware of these things and do as you're saying, Zeus, then, then I can't take it back, right? <laughs> then it's on the table. It's real. I've got to deal with it. And I don't really want to deal with it. I'd rather remain unconscious because I think it's going to take too much out of me to, to meet the truth of my situation. And I, I, all I can say to someone like that is this. One, it will always go more poorly for you in the end if you don't become honest and transparent with yourself now. And two, you don't have to do it in a dramatic all or nothing way. You can literally bring it out on the table, recognize it, feel the pain of it, feel some of the ambiguity and co conflicts you have around it. Be honest about those and then simply say, here's what I have energy enough to deal with now. I recognize all of you, right? I recognize I can't take care of all of you at the same time that are sitting on this table. But one, I will deny none of you. I accept and honor all of you, the truth of all of you. And two, to say, okay, in my life right now, I'm going to take a little courage step. And that one or two things that are on the table that I feel like I can comfortably do something with, but that still stretches me a little bit, right? Still pulls me in the direction uh, out of my stupor, <laughs> my, 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 moral, my moral morass um, that adds meaning to my life, joy to me, care or benefit to someone else. I'm going to do it. And what I'm seeing is there is, and I'm seeing this in my own son, he's 15 years old. He's really, really getting into church. You'd think, oh, like, you know, with all the kids on their phones and everything, he likes the Bible. He likes getting I, this. He did independent of me. I literally was at a Greek Orthodox church here as a festival in the fall, about a month after we moved here to in Ohio. And he wanted a cross. And, you know, got one of those nicely inlaid ones, a Greek looking cross. And he wears it on the outside of his shirt. I didn't I didn't do that. It, there's nothing in his life that did that. There's, there's this energy rising, right, of dedication, of spirituality, of sacredness. And I can see it in him, right? So <clears throat> even if it's in your daily life, be sacred to that one or two things that you put on that table as if it were going to some kind of sacred service, as if it were going, attending to some serious thing like church or whatever, okay? And then, you know, if it's if it's volunteering, go ahead and volunteer. You know, if you love animals and you really miss animals and maybe your dog just died or whatever, and you're thinking, oh, I, I miss that. And then one of the things on the table is I'd like to volunteer at an animal shelter, then go ahead and do that. You know, you say, I don't have a lot of time, maybe just a couple hours a week, then just do those two hours a week. The whole point is this. We need to regain that spiritual confidence and practical confidence in ourselves again that discerning thing that we tend to override, right? This is what I really want to do. This is what I really feel, but I have to do this and I have to do that. In my book and in some of the interviews done, it's the problem of the urgent versus the important, right? So the urgent always swallows up all your time. I got to do this. I got to drop the kids off. I got to do this. I got to do that. In fact, I t tell people, go ahead and put a line right in the middle of a paper and put, Basically, what's most important to me in the first column, 
All right. And then you just list all the things, faith, family, community, those kinds of things come up. And then what I did yesterday, <laughs> right? Or if, if, or if, you didn't, if you didn't do much yesterday, it was a Sabbath, then what you did in the last couple of days. And you're going to see this huge difference, right? You're going to see a bunch of usually fairly menial tasks that are just, you know, taking the kids to school, doing this and that. Well, you know, scrolling through your social media, et cetera, et cetera. And, and over here, you're going to have faith, family, community, you know, et cetera. And you're going to like, why am I not spending any time over here in the important side? versus the versus the urgent side right and and something even just that simple and to say okay i'm going to dedicate myself to do some work here even if it's a couple hours a week doing it consistently and and that what you're doing is sending a powerful message to yourself your soul and yourself i am advocating and i am directing attention and effort toward you I am not simply going to be swallowed by the system. And it works better if you can have a small community of people around you who are trying to do the same thing. Uh, it's really, really hard to do just on your own. And, you know, Jeremy, you calling me up out of the blue example of that, where two or more are gathered, right? You know, um, possibilities begin to magnify in an exponential way because your ideas affect me. My background and influence affects you. Us having a conversation can be shared with your audience. And, you know, we, that's how changes are made. That's how we learn to transform. We don't do it on our own, but we have to start from that position and make that choice. I, I love the way you talk because I feel like, okay, he's filling up this bucket. I'm going to ask about this bucket. Then you start filling up the next bucket. And I'm like, well, I need to ask <laughs> about the first bucket. There's this second bucket. And feel free. Then, feel then free. Then all of a sudden I've got 10 buckets. I'm like, what, 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 what do I ask about? Um, feel free. We can go back and do the ones you want. I'm, I'm, I'm in your hands now. I, I feel like I've laid out the framework from where I'm coming from. So let's get into examples. No problem. So, so um, Something that I read on your Substack, and it was about, I can't remember how you you phrased it, but it is essentially about the cult-like thinking that is so prevalent now. Mm -hmm. And people want to belong to a thing. Mm -hmm. And the, the little bit that I have anecdotally kind of come across is that a lot of times what happens when people come to belong to a thing is that they surrender some part of their personal power to be a part of that thing. Mm -hmm. Often kind of see the softening of men as they join a larger faith community because they all become very obedient and very kind and very generous and very uh, all of these things, but also kind of, I don't know, um, wimpy. And mm -hmm. so it becomes less of a place that a lot of guys want to go because they say, well, people in faith communities are wimpy guys. Mm -hmm. When there's a lot of strength that a person needs to gain from a sense of spirituality. And so um, when when you're talking about things that people belong to, it's not just churches. There's giant wavelengths that people are grabbing onto right now. And I'm talking about in the political world, the media world, the, the health world and everything like that, that people are choosing one side or the other side as if there are only two sides to this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And they become cultists of that 
ideology or political ideal or um uh conspiracy theory or or whatever it is uh mm-hmm. that 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 there is and then they start building identity around that mm-hmm. and it's it's a false identity that feels very much like a full identity because they um, kind of rabbit hole themselves and research things that agree with themselves. And then they have fully developed themselves into somebody who hates this other group for this reason. Right. And um, it, it's, it's exceedingly shallow and, and it's, it's not just prevalent. It's, it's affecting communities. It's affecting family relationships. It's affecting people's relationship with themselves and their past and their parents and their kids mm-hmm. and, and, and all of this. And it's, it, it's run by the compunction that people have to feel right and believe in a dogma of mm-hmm. some kind. And it feels to me like there is a powerful system of an elite level in our Western world that is using this in mm-hmm. order to make a society complicit and obedient mm-hmm. to things that 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 they a, a, a world design that they want. And so the individual, mm-hmm. it's very, very difficult to be free. Mm-hmm. And and to be free, you have to think as an individual, act as an individual, and oftentimes that gets people into trouble. So it's a whole lot easier to adapt. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know that you've written a lot about this. And so kind of what are you thinking with this? Well, here, I mean, there was an interview I did with, with, with Regina Meredith on this uh, where I said there's a new technology emerging where people's idealism – which really is oriented from a sincere place toward the betterment of the world is being used against them. They're being they're it, It's like a grooming. They, they draw you in through idealism, like sustainability, for instance, right? Earth's sustainability, right? Who, who could disagree with that? You know, honor mother earth. And then they have a few things like, Oh, you know, let's do alternative fuels and solar, et cetera, et cetera. Then before you know it, they're creating climate alarmism, which science does not support, right? They're creating 15-minute cities, which have surveillance attached to them, that are going to control your behavior, right? And control access to your bank accounts, et cetera, if you don't do the right thing, quote-unquote, environmentally. And and so what your idealism, which was this world of people coming together across differences in order to help our survival and thriving into the future has become a a hook and a manipulation tool by this larger technocratic, well, very small actually, but powerful technocratic system and the people who represent it like the World Economic Forum to control people's behavior, to make all human beings essentially cogs of a part of of, of a technocratically designed machine, a soulless machine built around, I don't even know what the value is because you saw the response to COVID. They've literally got everything wrong. This supposed, you know, 
AI enhanced machine, it got everything wrong. You know, the vaccines didn't stop transmission. They didn't stop infection. Masks didn't work. You know, um, it goes on and on and on. You know, vaccines now are finding, especially with young people, the damages are far outweighing any kind of benefits. And then they say, well, this is a reason why you have to give us even more power. I'm like, you just literally failed and killed millions of people with your interventions say nothing of the poverty, to say nothing of people stuck at home in abusive environments, away from school, away from food, right? The free lunch programs. It was one of the, it is the greatest human right, human comprehensive human rights tragedy by far in the history of the world, period. All of it generated by this group of people who is now trying to use, right? You and my, our idealism, right? To create a utopia, I'm like, hmm, I saw <laughs> in the last two years the so-called utopia you created, and it was exactly the opposite. It was dystopian in every shape and form. It was inhumane. It was careless. It was, what did I put here, mindless, right? It Trillions and trillions of dollars went to the top few hundred people in the world. Huge concentration of wealth. So. Your vision of the good world is one in which I'm obedient. Remember, there was that uh, that phrase in one of the commercials for the World Economic Forum, you will own nothing and be happy. Literally, that's what it said. You will own nothing and be happy. We will control everything. You'll rent everything from us. And oh, by the way, if you do something we don't like, you won't be able to rent you won't be able to get food. <laughs> you won't be able to get a place to stay. So that's where your freedom emphasis comes on. We have to exert freedom, though, at this individual level. One of the best ways we can do this, going to our earlier talking, is to free ourselves from the habits and norms in which we've agreed to be obedient to this society. We need to positively rebel, nonviolently, civil disobediently rebel against this. In my book, Transforming Economy, I say, what's going to stop young people from moving in together? Own a house. Own a group house. Uh, have group meals, right? You don't have to be a communist or socialist to do that. You can be a communitarian, a person who believes in community, right? <laughs> I'm not a big fan of socialist communism, especially it's Marxist forms today, you know? Um, the ersatz, pseudo-Marxist, whatever you want to call it today, all, all of which are supporting that technocratic agenda of control over people. So become creative. Realize your time is the one thing you can't take back. So how can you maximize your time to be creative? How can you be together with other people in such a way that you help each other take care of the necessities of life and free up even more time to be creative and to have these kind of conversations? So in my ideal world, we wouldn't be identifying with nonprofits and movements like Greta Thunberg, okay? Because those are all being manipulated. What we do is decentralize and localize our efforts, okay? And in that, we have to get real about what we really want to do in the world. And we have to get really real about supporting other people. If you are family members, right, that have extra money, and you have someone developing a new business or a talent, invest in that new business or talent, okay? 
well, I don't know about my pension is, and I'm, I'm like, dude, what's important here? Uh, just like my son, I would say, go back to a spiritual environment, reinvigorate your spiritual life. Even if it means, you know, a church is even somewhat industrial, make the effort to, to recover your moral fiber, to get some instruction, right? And, you know, um, I think the Bible is a good source. I mean, obviously, some of it's allegorical. And if you read it literally, you're going to be in big trouble. Um, but find things that raise your frequency. I like to listen to classical music when I'm when I'm walking. That raises my frequency. I like to listen to um, Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus, the Stoics, on, you know, on my on my uh, on my iPhone as I'm as I'm actually cleaning the basement. I was doing it while I was cleaning my sister's basement. So find that's a that's a super simple way to do it, right? You're doing something that would be normally mindless. Put something mindful on, okay? Like Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus. And while you're doing it, learn, raise your frequency. So there we need to we need to do that rebellion. We need to do that unplugging and we need to find specific simple ways together and individually to devote ourselves to things that are going to create the alternative. It's not that difficult. No, we probably can't imagine it. But the number one thing I would say for the, what we're experiencing and what you identified right now is do not buy into the idealistic programs. I'm vegan. I'll give you another example. I'm vegan, right? Um, works for me spiritually. The reason why I was vegan and I stopped drinking as well, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh said, well, have a little bit of alcohol and see how it affects you. And I found that alcohol got between me and my spirit, just very, very slightly or moderately. But I'm like, I don't need it. I choose to want to have that stronger relationship with spirit. So I got rid of drinking. The same with vegan. I mean, I, I saw a movie called Cowspiracy that affected me a little bit. But I tried it and I found that, again, my my relationship with my body, my relationship with my spirit was enhanced by this diet. And I am stridently against Bill Gates Foundation, WEF. And they're saying, eat less meat. I am very much for decentralized family farms that make eggs and meat for people who are still eating meat. I far prefer that than the synthetic meat that they're trying to get at and the genetically modified things that they're trying to sneak under the door of veganism. I ain't buying it. Right? That's why I am a, I am, I, I'm a strident supporter of family farming. Right. I know that that in the end is going to be better for everyone. And you don't just go ahead and cut off meat altogether, okay? You eat healthy meat, you create local economies, you do farm to table type of restauranting and, and, and farmer's markets. That's how you get healthy, right? You don't, you don't say, oh, we need to eat less meat and you know, do, uh, they, they talk about eating bugs. They make jokes about that, but they literally have talked about grinding up and using insect protein you know, uh, it's 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 almost getting like Soylent Green. It's just you'd think that these guys are, are joking, right? Like this is some parody, but it's not. These guys really believe in this. <laughs> you know, uh, climate change. We're, we're raising about a tenth of a degree per decade. It is not a climate emergency. It's changing. Some of it's human induced, but not a lot. Uh, more people die from the cold. There's more green space actually happening now 
as a result of the increased CO2. So again, you know, the actual real world outcome, much like the Omicron variant, right? When it came along, it was like the best vaccine you could get was Omicron. You, you get you get infected, you have cold-like symptoms, you know, <laughs> you're truly, you're truly protected at that point, you know. So we're being taught by the spectacular failures of these would-be social architects, these technocrats, and by our own hearts and our own lack of meaning, right? That we need to start putting the important over the hysterical, okay? Do not allow yourself to respond in fear. Always ask the question, what are they trying to gain by making me afraid, okay? First of all, are they trying to make me afraid? Or they are they offering something that I can make an independent value on? Well, vaccine mandates aren't asking, they're not allowing you to have a choice at all, right? They're saying you have to do this in order to, and it looks like in Hollywood, there's one studio that wants to force people to wear a mask again. Just saw that the other day. Obviously, it's just a control point. We know at this point, the Cochrane Review shows that masks don't do any good. And in fact, they can do harms, especially on bacteria infections because of the way that we have it around here. So again, the truth has a way of poking up, right? It, it's it's coming forward. And the truth right now is we can't go back. We cannot trust. It's not that we can't trust our leaders. We can trust our leaders. We can trust them to use us and to fail us. Okay. <laughs> so what I've done, here's another good example, is one of the most powerful things that I've done when I was still out in California, there's a group called Moms for Liberty, considered politically conservative. I'm way supposedly left. I went to door to door for Bernie Sanders, right? When I was, when he had the primary in California. Okay. Okay. But I'm, I'm very much in line with core conservative values, right? Faith, family, integrity, responsibility, et cetera. Okay. And I'm certainly in line with reality, being reality-based. Now there's a term called based versus woke. I think it's short for reality-based, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm reality-based as well. I believe in science and reality-based. And so, um, so when in this Moms for Liberty thing, when it was clear that masks are impeding uh, uh, cognitive and intellectual development of children, that it was unnecessary, we gain a coalition with Moms for Liberty to get masks outside of the Placer County schools. We said, mm. uh-uh. and it was successful. And it only happened, you know, it happened a few weeks, maybe a month before, before they were relenting on the state level, but it was an important achievement. And what I'm finding, even someone like Alex Jones considered like, like the far right weirdo conspiracy theorist, he's advocating, he says, don't let them goad you into violent response. Always make sure it's nonviolent, civil disobedience. I'm like, Alex Jones is saying that, you know? So we're having a convergence. The realignment is happening from the top down, bottom up. That's the realignment. People along the bottom are not going to be split up, you know, in culture wars against each other. Now they're beginning to realize, not especially, we're finally getting a class consciousness here. Class is finally entering the conversation. You're allowed to talk about race all you want. You're allowed to talk about sex all you want and transgender and all this and that. But don't talk about class. Don't talk about the working class and what interests you might have with the middle class, what interests you maybe have, you know, across racial, 
you know, and, and gender, et cetera, lines. And uh, I, that, that new song by Oliver Anthony that became a complete sensation was That's exactly. the one, wasn't he like playing a ban- banjo? In, in, yes, it's the yeah, Richmond, north of Richmond. Yes. Yes, so there's class consciousness right in the title. And there is, I'm, I'm seeing a, a realignment here. Uh, I, I'm seeing common cause between working class conservatives and working class liberals and progressives realizing who who is really, I wouldn't say their enemy, but their adversary, right? It's not each other, right? And I've seen an overwhelming comment by people saying both parties are corrupt, mm-hmm. you know, because they're controlled by the yeah. this small group of people. You know, I as as you're talking, I'm thinking about real life examples of you know you can you can t- you can count the veracity of a perspective when you see it play out over time. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting here in a little town in California called Forest Hill, and what you can't see is that I have these giant windows in front of my desk right here, and I look out into the forest. The forest was burned last year in a fire called the Mosquito Fire, and it happened a year ago in a week. And I'm looking out on a forest that is totally black and the, and the trees are sticks and they're standing there. And if I had my window open, you would hear chainsaws because they're having to take all of them down and replant them. Uh, It was a devastating fire. Now, back in the 1980s, Forest Hill was a logging town and it was owned by a number of private interests and they were logging the forest and what have you. And, you know, I don't know enough about it to know whether there was this kind of clear-cut practice going on. Perhaps that was something that was going on. But the Sierra Club got involved in many different precincts of California and the West to stop the logging entirely. And what they found was that there was an endangered owl, the spotted owl, that was uh, uh, living in the trees. And so what happened was they shut down all logging period. And so the industry of logging in Forest Hill and many of these small logging towns was overnight just gone and people moved out of these small towns. And then what happened is the underbrush just started to grow. So what you see around in these large areas is the underbrush is so thick that you can't walk three feet into a national forest because it's full of manzanita and it's full of bush and dead things. And then they're they're Uh, planting all the same trees like ponderosa pines and so if one tree gets a disease all the trees are susceptible to that because you don't have a well-balanced forest with different types of trees cedar trees sequoia trees these different kinds of trees it's a it's an emaciated undermanaged forest because the native americans who lived here they used to burn Every number of years, they would burn these forests to keep mm-hmm. them so that the animals could actually walk through them, that they could hunt them, that the forests were actually healthy. So what comes through these California wildfires and these different wildfires are just absolutely devastating. And the the economic impact of these fires, because you have these forests that are literal nuclear bombs that that get started because a transformer blows up or something like that they 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 absolutely create so much harm for an environment that i'm I go ahead and and provide the sierra club with the greatest in noble intention they wanted a cleaner environment but the result of these policies was this and i'm looking right now at cbs news 
the the deadly cargo ship fire, the burning vessel. Did you hear about this? This cargo ship that was carrying 500 electric vehicles and electric vehicles. They're 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 great. They they're great for people who live in cities and commute small distances. And the technology is relatively new and they sometimes catch fire. They could not get this fire stopped. 500 burning electric cars on a a container ship in the North Sea. They had to sink the ship to stop the fire. And so Hmm. now this container ship is at the bottom of the ocean with all of these batteries in it that had been on fire. And I cannot imagine, how do you, how do you ever clean that up? How do you measure the environmental degradation of something like that? The point I'm trying to make is that it, it really, really is the case that we swing in these wide directions in order to try to solve a problem and there becomes this this side versus this side very binary uh thing that you're either on this side of this very important issue or you're on this side of this important issue and in the middle you're not right because you haven't chosen a side so there's this this incredible simplicity and duality of how do you solve for you know environmental degradation particularly when it's not exactly clear to, clear to me how serious things are because of how how much um, mistrust I've come to have in the information yeah. that there in the conventional information that there is out there about just generally things. So yeah. you know uh, you know ultimately as as you're as you're talking here, I'm thinking about the simplicity that is created in the obedience model and that you're really going for that. Can everybody please just stand up and think for themselves? Can you please uh, uh, develop your spirit and understand the world as more than this versus that and act on that? Well, this is where the safetyism comes along. There is toxic femininity as well as masculinity. And one of the forms toxic femininity happens is around safetyism and retreat. I think it's founded on the desire of a mother to protect her child from, you know, predators or whatever it happens to be, you know, any kind of danger in the world. But if it's done overly much, what it does is it creates a retreat in the face of any kind of challenge because all challenges have potential threats to them. And I think that same safetyism and an aspect of toxic femininity has pervaded many of our institutions right? Uh, We're now um, saying something offensive or something that someone takes offense to is a quote unquote attack, right? They've warped the notion of challenge to mean or difference or disagreement to mean you're against me. Thich Nhat Hanh, I think, repeated this. I think it's a Buddhist saying, I'm not sure, but said, why cover the earth with leather when you can learn to wear shoes right so we have a situation now both on the right and left in which people are trying to cover the world with leather and force other people according to their own way of doing things and they're they're failing spectacularly right but what does it do for those people that go along it does create a cheap and i think temporary coherence that at least we're trying to do something. But Hippocratic Oath says, first, do no harm. And all these inter- interventions in COVID is a spectacularly, unfortunately, uh, shining or 
or a disastrous example of this. When you do something just to say you've done something, you probably make things worse. You need to be patient. You need to try small things. You need to say where they're going. You need to experiment and you have to be very truthful with the results. If you rush things, if you force things, especially force other people to make certain choices, don't respect their freedom and autonomy. If you make things narrow and monolithic where everyone has to follow the same path, then something goes wrong with that. Everybody, everything blows up. Everyone's affected. The much I've, I've given this talk many times back when I was in a writer's retreat. I gave this talk on a local radio show. This is, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, um, 15 years. I said, you know, nature really has the recipe for us. It has three things that we need to pay attention to. Distinctness, diversity, and exchange. In all of its natural systems, a healthy, holistic system requires distinctness. Distinctness means that you and I have that divine genius, right? You, you and I have that unique thing to offer into society, into culture, into nature, right? And that's our distinctness. Without that distinctness, we do not have the vital power from which to generate energy, creativity, pro pro productivity, okay? And that means we need difference, right? We need difference. Everything is created, all energy is created by difference in a battery, difference between the positive pole and the negative pole, right? Ions going between that create a current. In our bodies, ATP and ADP is exchanging ions across the semi-permeable membrane. So instead of seeing these as threats or two different sides that are fighting each other, why don't we say it's necessary for us to be different, necessary for us to be distinct? I, I, have, I disagree with people on all kinds of things, biblical literalism, abortion, whatever. I'm like, I am glad, you know, I am glad you think as you do. Because you're different than I do. I honor the necessity of that. And I honor that you think differently. And I'm glad for it. Right? That's real diversity. That allows people not to get into monolithic modes of thinking. Right? If they can truly begin to decide and take nuanced views themselves, we have a, a, we have a rainforest. Rainforest is so amazing because it not only has diversity along the along the forest floor, but it has diversity three dimensionally. As you go up into the canopy, there's diversity there. Those are the strongest, best holistic environments, and we need to encourage that the real diversity, not this DIE, which is the opposite, this corporate monolithic ESG de diversity, equity, inclusion is the opposite of that. I grew up being a strong advocate of diversity, equity, and inclusion, real diversity, equity, and inclusion. What this corporate crap is doing is the exact opposite. You know, you know, a mom might have concern for a kid and wants that child to avoid pain. But guess what happens when you have a kid that's allergic to peanuts or has some, and you remove them from that? And furthermore, you remove peanuts from any environment, which is just a disastrous policy. Guess what happens to them? Their allergy gets worse. Guess what happens when they have systematic targeted exposure to it? Their allergy gets better. Mm, okay. So use that specific example socially. Instead of saying, oh, we're protecting you from mean speech, et cetera, et cetera. We need to expose people to real challenges and real differences in views and engage them to actually learn from and respect that other person. 
And not the least of which is their different view helps you have a better understanding of your own. Not against them, but in you. Like, what do I really believe about here? By honoring and recognizing, respecting their fundamental ethics and beliefs that give rise to their positions and feelings, you actually honor your own. It was a great thing in Epictetus today I was just listening to. He says, why would you dishonor yourself or injure yourself? By injuring that other person or going against them or attacking them, you are dissolving and corrupting yourself. Why would you basically engage in that kind of suicidal behavior? <laughs> really important point, Epictetus, you know, a couple thousand years ago, you know, uh, and that's exactly right. And there's a, a reverse of that, which he doesn't talk about, but I've been committed for my life is how do you honor the other person? Well, I honor them by wanting them to be different, by wanting them to be different than me, by wanting them to disagree with me, right? To be authentic to who they are. And I mean, we've talked about this in terms of relationships. Freedom and love. There was a recent Marcus Aubrey one. They talked about Gilbert talked about uh, freedom and love, right? Love being the thing that tends to do this, unify, and freedom does the thing that does this. And that the whole art of living is to bring freedom and love together, where you can be as diverse and distinct as possible. And you can exchange that with each other to create a really interesting ecosystem. And through that exchange, create this sense of unity. It's not a unity that's created by intervention and a top-down imposition of technocratic controls. It's a unity that says, as we go through this journey of difference, as I agree and disagree with you respectfully, and as I accept you as you are, okay, don't try to shout you down or try to win, you know, we find that we actually have a, a common human or spiritual root, right? Respectful dialogue, respectful disagreement allows us to understand our common humanity. Whereas retreating from that or condemning someone prevents that common humanity from being recognized. So there's a whole, we need a whole scale inversion where we invite challenge, conflict and engagement and exposure, right? where we understand that honoring someone is learning from them and contributing from our distinct thing. That's where the exchange comes in. Obviously in the forest, the, the healthiest forests have a lot of distinctness, a lot of niches, right? Nicely occupied, a lot of diversity, different forms of life, different parts of the canopy. And of course, just like with our own oxygen, carbon dioxide exchange system, you need exchange of that difference to create vitality, energy, and creativity. So, so here we are doing the opposite of all those, right? And in doing so, we're killing ourselves. Those are the necessities of life on the basic level. Instead, we're creating a monolithic cultures. Guess what happens when you have monolithic corn cultures, hybrid corn cultures? They get a little disease, just like you said with the trees. The whole thing is gone. You need that diversity, right? You need, you, you, and you need distinctness. You need people having very unique, authentic views out there to help enliven and and create uh, a, a fecundity in uh, in the world of ideas. You know, if we had a truly uh, a, a 
an education system that honored distinctness, which is how I try to teach, we wouldn't see learning disabled because that's one of the things I specialize as learning disabled. We see them as, as, and they are, they're hyper-processors. A lot of times they're more intelligent than the average, but we don't have the box to handle it. So we treat it as a disability, right? And we shunt them into special rooms. When I tutor, I don't. I say, you have a hyper-ability and we're going to, through conversation, figure out what it is your genius is and how you can connect it with, you know, the tests and things. And so they get to recognize both their special way of thinking and develop that. And they're able to translate it in such a way that they can do okay in school or even very well in schools. In fact, they tend to do very well and in a very accelerated way. Most often the problem is that things are too slow for them, right? <laughs> so engage them in a really rich environment. I've, uh, I use what I call a conversation-based way to do it. Conversation with your own thinking, conversation with me, the tutor, conversation with the problem. What is the problem telling you if it's a math problem, how to solve it, right? What is that X? That X doesn't want to be by itself. How do you get it by itself, right? I even get them into, into a conversation with the test makers. How are they trying to trick you? How are those test makers constructing this problem to get you to make a careless mistake and think you got the right answer on a multiple choice test? So that's the kind of awareness that people, some people call it meta-awareness, right? Awareness of awareness. Learning how to learn is meta-learning, right? Learning how to learn. So we, we need to start doing that. And on the most important level, spiritual. We need meta-spirituality, right? What is the spirit? What is the spirit teaching me, telling me what to do? How do I share it with, how do I develop it myself and share it with others? And, you know, that can be enhanced by some institutional things, but there's going to be a limit to that. I'm finding that limitation. I don't know about you. Just like with the jobs, I'm finding the limitations at other institutions, but I still honor them for trying. And, and I don't care how humble a person is, if they're making a sincere attempt to share with me their story, then I honor that. And I always find something to learn from in that because I'm not looking at my position and I'm not looking at the sophistication of the thought. I'm looking at the energy. And I'm also understanding as a fellow human being that it's important for me to evoke that, to say that I have a presence that wants who you are. And I will sit here and I will listen to that, ask questions. And, um, you know, not just as a counselor, but as a, as a, as a, as a, as a stranger even. So that's, we're getting there. I, I'm feeling pretty optimistic, believe it or not, because of the overreach of this technocratic agenda and the failures of it. We're questioning everything now. We're questioning the climate narrative. We're questioning the COVID narrative. This transgenderism, get this. I mean, here I am as a pro-feminist man, right? I actually showed up in a town hall sponsored by the U.S. Department of Education to advocate for women in sports. My sister was... Uh, executive director of the National Association of Girls and Women in Sports. And now we have patriarchy 2.0 trans version where men, biological men, now it's progressive to allow biological men to compete with women in things like weightlifting. <laughs> I'm going, the text of Title IX says you will not discriminate on the basis of sex, meaning Women, you know, will get funded equally and they have completely subverted the whole intent of that. The whole point, the reason why we have men's and women's sports 
has to do with that fundamental distinction. And so there, again, we have to see where that where, where things are being in, inverted in this absurd way, right? What is the human and humane way, the diversity, distinctness, and exchange way to work with this? Is it to allow men to just flood into women's sports, take all their scholarships, you know, and basically eliminate all that hard work? Or do we keep them segregated to, uh, to encourage that diversity and that distinctness and that excellence, right? And, and fairness. Obvious to everyone. Nobody I know of agrees with men infiltrating women's sports. They can get a few people on television shows, but nobody. Essentially, nobody agrees with that for obvious reasons. So it's almost like we're being played. They're seeing how far they can push, okay? Now it's our response. We got to hit that tennis ball back and we got to ace it. We got to hit it right in the corner and buy these people. And the best way to do this, say, uh-uh, we, we are going to have coalition across every one of the divisions they've tried to put between us. From the top, from the bottom up, we're going to take on that top-down a desire to impose control on our freedom and our love. And we're not going to put up with it. So, I mean, that's, I mean, my, my Substack articles, that's, that, that's what I get at. You know, uh, when it comes to gender, I, I make, in this last article, I make three distinctions. The first is sex. Sex is a biological fact, okay? Both in terms of the chromosomes, but, you know, with a very, like, seven in 10,000 people that have some kind of intersex. They were the XXY chromosome or whatever. But for the most part, it's a biological fact. People confuse that with gender. Gender is a sociological and linguistic cultural construction. It has to do with how people think a man or woman, a male or female should behave, okay? And then finally, there's spiritual polarity, right? Which is the yin and the yang, the receptive force and the assertive force, positive and negative, light and dark, okay? Needing each other in order to create human endeavor, human creativity, human life. And I'm like, it's a simple thing here. This whole transgenderism would be solved if we simply said, you are your sex, okay? You are male or female. You're able within that female or male to act however you want. If you're gonna act in a way that's masculine and you're feminine, and you're female, that's fine, right? That's a construction. That construction in the industrial model was more important, right? Than your individual expression. We're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not going to make that construction, that identity, that label important. If you want are a tomboy, be a tomboy. If you're a, a boy that likes to play with dolls, be a boy that likes to play with dolls. We you know, do not honor this industrial, you have to have the sociological and cultural thing be matched perfectly with this. Instead, we have the opposite. We have this, um, we have this industrial uh, sacred cow of gender, and then we're back imposing it on kids, 12, 10, medicalizing them, cutting off their body parts. That's that's insane. The other way is the moral way, which is to be embracing of the unique way of expressing themselves, no matter what sex they are. Allow them to, quote unquote, experiment with gender the way that they want to experiment with it. Do not intervene medically for these people, okay? Allow them have confidence instead of retreating through that, through dramatic surgeries, to embrace 
the fact that you are unusual and different, that you are a boy that doesn't act quite like maybe your normal, your average boy does, or a girl that doesn't act. That's great. We want that diversity. We want that mm-hmm. distinctness, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and and that way you don't get into this medicalization and demonization of you being who you are, you know? And, and you don't water down spiritual polarity either by trying to have this androgyny that just erases sex altogether. Or you know, you can, it, yeah. it, it's interesting what you're talking about here with regard to this, um, this this kind of either or idea of what masculine and uh, mass the masculine and the feminine is supposed to be. Uh, this this sort of uh, the word is binary, obviously. Uh, that 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 there is. I was recently the CEO of a company with about 200 employees. And I have a personal aesthetic. I do enjoy stylish dressing. And I felt that it was an important thing to represent this organization by dressing in a classy way. And that often included, you know, suits and that sort of thing, particularly in public when I was representing the organization. And I was pretty floored by some of the bonehead reactions that I would get from people who had a visceral reaction to me looking nice and dressing up because it's such an uncommon thing now for a man to do, particularly in the Western United States, because the uniform generally is a t-shirt and a pair of jeans. And because I was dressing up from that, it challenged some people's concept of what a man is to them. And so I have emails from people with withering criticism of me all the way down to tie clasps and colors that I wear and the types of suits that I would wear and these things that I would just think, you paid attention to that? And it bothered you enough to sit down and write to me about it? And so... There is out there a strong pressure that people have to conform and to help others conform to a specific concept of what they think a human is supposed to be. And to, for me as a 46-year-old man to be getting emails from people that are my age and older that are um, viscerally horrible. Just mm-hmm. about the fact that I dress in a way that is different from the average person. I I was uh, was just blown away by 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 that. And you're talking a lot here about the concept of temperance, the mm-hmm. concept of mm-hmm. carefully and thoughtfully and spiritually defining mm-hmm. what your values are and. Mm-hmm moving in the direction of that irrespective of these various popular narratives that there are about what something is supposed to be. What is it for you? Because Mm -hmm. at the end of everything, it was you that led this life. It was you that made these decisions in your life. And so did you make decisions based upon the way that others wanted you to be or did you make authentic expression decisions because you 
were dedicated to living in your own values and your own style. You spoke a little bit there about the the industrial education model and how it rewards certain types of learning. I'm very, very passionate about this. As mm-hmm. I look back at my own uh, education journey in early childhood, and I was one of those kids that was moved to a different pla- uh, classroom because I wasn't like the others. And there was uh, one teacher that said, um, do you all realize that Jeremy is gifted? And mm-hmm. the answer was, no, because he won't listen in class. And exactly. it was because I was bored. And yes. uh, I, I recently uh, played a, a book on tape, uh, an, an audio book for somebody at the speed that I can comprehend it. And I'll tell you, if I, if some, some of these apps have speeds that are above two times and, and I'm listening to them sometimes at 2.5 times and to this other person, it sounded like a chipmunk talking Right. and I'm catching every word because my processing, my audio processing speed is, is pretty extreme. Yeah. But in class, I was so profoundly bored as a child that yes, I was pretty naughty. And I was pretty mouthy and I did uh, apparently a lot of dancing in class just because <laughs> <laughs> it was so profoundly bored to go. <laughs> you know what? It was, it was, uh, it was the time of new wave, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so ultimately you're talking about every single human being with all of these wonderful little gifts that are their unique contribution to the world. It happens in the way that you think. It happens in the way you learn. It happens in the way that you express yourself to the world and that there are these forces that are enforced by a monolithic idea of what somebody is supposed to believe in that pushes back on the person in order to push them into some sort of ah now we can now we can all proceed because everything is all all is well everybody's fitting into um some kind of shoebox and and you're 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 really pushing people right. to invent their own authentic expression mm-hmm. yeah and and this is the this is this is the turnout education it, it's where where do you get your coherence from the industrial system gets its coherence for people obeying and playing their respective cogs in the machine. The problem and deadliness of that system, and we're seeing it now, is that if the machine is designed and built toward our own self-destruction, there's nothing to stop it. Everyone just uncritically plays their own role. That's why it's so important to have diversity, real diversity, not this ridiculous manufactured stuff, because those people can push back. Like uh, like the people in the uh, Great Barrington Declaration pushed back, said we need targeted response to COVID because that's what we've always done in the past, right? In order to avoid the, the catastrophic effects of shutdown and isolation, et cetera, et cetera. They were right. Had they not spoken up, right? There would be the only the juggernaut in the machine going off the cliff, Okay. At least they were part of voices. Certainly I, from the beginning, were raising all kinds of concerns that have proven all to be true for the most part. Um, And I went ahead and voiced that authentically and differently. And I went ahead and did research on ivermectin and secured those sorts of things. And I ended up helping other people uh, with that knowledge. 
right? So we need, it's not just pushback. It is truly a different way of having coherence. There's the control coherence, which will almost always end in disaster, where you say, I I will either cede my authority to someone else who's going to control the situation, or if you're one of those people, you say, I'm going to control the situation, but you're from an industrial framework. This is a comprehensive problem, and you're a health administration official who literally has no scientific background and absolutely no authority professionally in any sane world to pronounce anything. You literally know nothing, has taken no classes, know nothing about health, know nothing about viruses, and yet you're making these mandates and declarations based on complete lack of knowledge because it makes you feel coherently because you've intervened and you've exerted your power as if that's inherently good. In an industrial system, he's in that box. He has that power. His job description is, you know, the coherence is that he exercises that. In a holistic system, a more spaghetti world, where people like yourself when you were learning are recognized and and fostered to be different you create a diversity of opinions you go through those scenarios and opinions you create experiments along those lines and see which one works better right but in in a globalized uh in in inter interlinked uh world run by a technocratic industrial mindset that doesn't happen. The most powerful, the most specialized end up calling the shots. And even when they fail, they 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 literally make a bid for more power. In education, we're set up to cede our authority to these kinds of people because the education itself was meant to instantiate that from the beginning, meant to reproduce norms, reproduce knowledge, not to create new knowledge, not to transform society, but to reproduce society. And there is a reproductive element there. I believe in conservatives. I believe in tradition. I believe that wisdom, those are things to be, you know, I'm, I'm listening to Epictetus and a couple thousand years old. That's a form of conservatism, but it still works today. So there is a, there is, there are appropriate forms of conservatism, including reproducing things that are desirable. But you cannot and should not simply try to make the whole point of the system reproduction. The whole point of learning is to transform our abilities and develop our capabilities beyond what we have now. And that's the more what people call the more liberal or progressive or creative transformative element. These both work together. Right now we have the worst of both worlds. What you have is this pseudo progressive organization, which is nothing but a control freak who's reproducing a very narrow band of wealthy elite power and concentrating wealthy elite power. It's the worst of both worlds. It's a monoculture and it's imposing itself and trying to make monolithic and controllable all this wonderful diversity underneath it. We from the bottom have to pose this agenda by becoming more critically aware, by becoming more diverse, more distinct, and by exchanging and creating coalitions here. Use those diversity, distinctness, and exchange. They can't do it, right? They're monolithic. <laughs> they're, they're all groupthink up here. 
we use a vital holistic approach against their industrial top-down approach, we will win. Only if we agree to fall in or, or, or suborn or surrender our authority to them will we lose. So when it comes to education, I'm in favor of education, classical education, like I said, critical thinking, create creativity, where disabilities are not seen as disabilities, they're seen as giftedness, right? And not in a fake kind of way. I'm like, like literally, what unique way thing do you bring? And what gives you great joy? That should be the purpose of education. Did you know that the whole root of education, do you know what it actually means? No, go for it. Lead out, educt, ek or e, the prefix in Greek means to out of. And duct means to lead. So the Greek and Latin roots of the word mean to lead out. Plato believed that we had all the knowledge in us. And the teacher's job was just to facilitate the grounding and leading out of that knowledge. You know? So uh, Socrates, I guess, Socrates, Plato, talking about Socrates for saying this. So think about in terms of divine genius, right? Each of us has the knowledge inside. And each of us, in my notion, has a, a unique and valuable knowledge inside. Okay, so you're an active person. You're a smart person. You're a high, high, high auditory processing person. All those things become part of the educational process to see who you are and how you can bring this forward. Okay, what are your joys? What are the things that you're really good at? What are the things you struggle at? All of these become input in a true educational system, a post-postmodern education system, where the coherence is created not by top-down tests and imposition, and if you're not listening, then you ship to a special classroom, but by an individualized approach, which allows you to develop an aware, self-conscious understanding of your own way of learning, right? You learn how you learn, right? And then you share that with other students in peer groups with with, with mutual projects and problem-based projects and and you know creative projects. And go out into the community. And if there's a water pollution problem, you use your gifts and you team up with other people that have their gifts and you start to analyze that problem. You start to interview community members. I mean, that's what the education could be, right? A post-industrial education could be. From the bottom up, we are using our diverse learning of capabilities to create this very vibrant, diverse engagement and we're doing it locally we're doing it from the ground up literally talking about the actual ground environmentally or the lake or the stream and the actual community members instead we get this silly stuff where we learn what happened 200 years ago and history always seems to end right before we were born right we don't go out into the community to do these things we don't use our mathematics and our science to do that Maybe we do it in a little bit, you know, a little project here, a little field trip there. But a, an ideal education would do that. It would do that for civic education. What is representation? What is democracy? What does it look like? How can we stimulate it here? You know, and ask kids for original ideas on that. Let them be critical minded. Are we having democracy in the school? Should we have a democracy in this school? Well, for some things, yes, and other things, most definitely not. <laughs> right? Because you're not developmentally quite capable of understanding certain things. 
Sorry, that's not every just that has to do with the, the kids that were being medicalized, these so-called gender reassignment surgery. They're saying like a 10-year-old can make decisions of lasting impact or a 12-year-old enough to cut off and create permanent for infertility and permanent sexual dysfunction? I don't think so. There's a reason why we don't accord decision-making to a 12-year-old. You can't buy beer until you're 21, but you can make that decision when you're almost half that age? No. So again, we don't need to create some kind of huge complex system. If we have the ability to reflect, be compassionate, and actually want what another person has to offer that's unique from themselves, rather than be threatened by it and try to hit them down, we're going to do just fine. Our country, that is America, is very well positioned to do that. It's young. It's always been creative. It's adolescent. It's allowed itself to be taken over in some sense, be seduced by materialism and upper and middle and upper middle class lifestyle. But now, (laughs) especially after COVID, we're seeing the, the dark side that's been sneaking up behind all along. And we have a decision to make. Hardly a member of your audience, hardly a member of a person I know, even the people who are not politically engaged, they sense this stuff. They are aware of it. We need to help educate each other on how to move forward from here. We need to learn how to unplug and not give her, not conform to this mindless juggernaut. And we learn we need to learn how to team up and collaborate together in very real ways in education, community politics, if that's what you want, certainly economy, right, to um, to start making decisions that allow for a different kind of coherence, right? One based on, as you say, temperance, based on seeing the best in one another and desiring for that to come forward, not based on agreement or disagreement, not based on identity. Identity is a faceless label. It doesn't have any spirit to it. I want to know a person's humanity, not their identity, Right? I want to know what they have, they want to accomplish in the world, what dreams they have for their kids, right? Not whether or not they can gain some social status by saying, I have a trans kid, right? I want fairness. I don't want men competing in women's sport because I want fairness. Again, it goes back to virtues. We need a society run by virtues. What did the Greeks say virtues were? Like in the end, what does it all go to? What can you truly hold on to? Socrates said, you can truly hold on to virtue. He said, the highest virtue is knowledge. Some people might say faith or, you know, some other thing. But the whole point is a virtue is a virtue because it's not something for something else. It's not an instrument for something else. It is an end in itself. Human beings are not instruments to something else. They are an end in themselves. Nature is not just to be plundered right? She is an end in herself and is this ultimate giver of beauty and giver of inspiration and sustainer of our life. When we start treating ourselves and each other intrinsically rather than instrumentally, we will have conquered the industrial impulse. The industrial impulse was an experiment, a worldwide experiment about how to treat everything as if it were a contract or an instrument to some other desire. How do I get something by exploiting this or that? Now, 
we are being invited, in fact, forced, I think, to say quite a different question. How can I live a good life by deeply embracing, exploring, and honoring this and you and Mother Nature and anything that I confront? How can I create a positive, healthy connection with you? What are the requirements of that? I gave some of them, respecting the diversity, distinctness, exchange. Why have an enemy? Instead of retreating, someone's coming at you, approach them, right? Instead of looking at them as an identity or as a potential threat, <clears throat> look at them as an opportunity, opportunity to learn something and thank them for not agreeing with you. Right? <laughs> thank them for teaching you something. You know, I mean, it kind of reminds me of an analogy I said, I've gotten to the point in my life, if you present to me a kale salad or an ice cream sundae, there is absolutely no hesitation. I'm going to take the kale salad. I know, uh, first of all, I like, I like it. I like the taste of it. But more importantly, because sometimes you have to grow into that. But more importantly, I know the effect it's going to have on my body. I'm going to be just like, bah! right? And then ice cream sundae is just going to make me feel sludgy. It's just going to bring me right down. It's going to be a little bit of a bump up and then a wonk. So, again, intrinsic. That kale salad has an intrinsic vitality to it, right? I, I bring that into me. This is what's going to happen to me. That ice cream sundae has an instrumental pseudo vitality that kicks me up with a little bit of blood sugar and comes crashing down. There are choices. Morally, spiritually, practically, economically, politically. We need to understand what has intrinsic value, or at least some promise. We're all imperfect, okay? Has a higher proportion of intrinsic value. And what are merely manipulations and have in instrumental manipulations and exploitations? Don't agree to them. Don't agree to be manipulated. Don't agree to be used as an instrument. If you're feeling that you're just a grind at work and it's a bullshit job, make plans, real plans. Don't just like scan through social media and dream about having another job. <laughs> Take the time to meditate, reflect, find those aspects in you, what kinds of other kind of work, volunteer even, that might go with it and begin to actually take steps. Talk to people who are in that area, you know, Research it yourself. Engage in experiments. If it's a small business you want to start and you really love cookies, well, make a batch or two in your oven. Trot them around. Get feedback from your friends and family. Set up a little bit of a stand, whatever it happens to be, you know, and let your let your passion carry you. If it turns out that you're really bad at it <laughs> for some reason and no one wants to buy it, don't use that as a reason to say, all right, find a way to either fine tune it or move into a different baked good or move into something else, but continue to learn, learn how to learn. Dr. Zeus Yamayanis, thank you so much for spending just about two hours here talking to us. You know what I, I really love about you is your total fearlessness in going into and talking about really difficult subjects and your 
fierce devotion to the concept of temperance and unique individualism and authenticity mm-hmm. and the importance that you place on the individual being a holistically spiritual, unique and loving individual and defining your personhood by who you really are and not by these external forces that seem to want to make you travel in one lane or another lane. I love your total devotion to real thinking and to your your willingness to tackle really difficult topics. So thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mutiny podcast. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's always been a pleasure to, to, to speak with you and always a pleasure to, to collaborate with someone to help get a message of, 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 you say, mindful mutiny out there where we could be positive and at the same time also agree not to participate in things that are not healthy or positive. So thank you for the work you're doing as well. I'm Jeremy Van Wert, CEO of High Altitude Mindset. Now go be something great.